Welcome, everybody, to episode number 22 of the Rockonomics Podcast, where we explore the price tags and paychecks of the business that is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I am your host, Dill, and today's guest pays off the show's description better than most. It's Ricky Rackman, who most of you, from my generation anyway, know as the host of MTV's Headbangers Ball from 1990 to 1995. Since then, he's done hosting duties for World Championship Wrestling, the VH1 Rock of Love series and its spinoffs, and for the last 15 years, he's been the driving force behind his own NASCAR-themed syndicated radio show called Racing Rocks with Ricky Rackman. He's had quite an interesting journey and was a very entertaining interview, so let's cut to the chase and get to Ricky Rackman on the Rockonomics Podcast. Um, so one of the things I was, I guess, surprised at, but it should be of no surprise, is when you go back to your teenage years that you were, you know, going for it as a musician or, uh, as, or as a singer. Still. <laughs> I've, oh, I mean... I always wanted to be a singer. When I still go to see bands play, I want to be that guy on stage. And in the past couple of years, I've had the chance to get up on stage at a few shows, and and I love it. But it's probably time for me to give. I mean, I still have this uh, this delusion. <laughs> I've even got some musicians that I'm thinking about going in and doing you know four songs with. Sure. So I've always wanted to be a. I mean, my life is I've I've always wanted to be a singer in a band. I've always wanted to be a race car driver, and I found a way to make a living just being a poser and watching and talking about both <laughs> being a general observer yes um was there ever a time that you were like for instance the battery club i read that you guys you know you did open up for offspring were you ever in a position where you know labels were sniffing around or you when were- when i was in battery club we did virgin did pay for like a four song demo right that we had just been together and I, I think it was probably more of a novelty they wanted to see what it was like when you take a guy that hosted headbangers ball and a guy that was in social distortion okay and um it, I had dreams of it. it. You know, we just had some opening gigs. Nobody was really that into it. Um, I thought we were much better than we were, and <laughs> I still like. I still like it. You know, I I loved playing music. You know, I think that. I think I can write pretty good songs. I know on stage, I get I get a little nervous sometimes, sure. and I'm not that great on stage. And it's tough when you know you're watching some of your friends that are some of the best in the world. Right. So you know, trying to find out what what I am on stage. When I'm on stage, just talking on a microphone, I'm great. I love hosting things and getting up on stage in front of you know. I I love doing that. Yeah, but when like I'm it. singing, it's like you're so vulnerable. Sure, you know for sure. So this whole um, the Battery Club that was after kind of you you already were. You were Battery known. Club was towards the ending of. I mean, I think I was. St- I still was on Headbangers Ball when okay. I was doing Battery Club. Okay, but it was going back to the music that I grew up listening to, which was actually punk rock. I grew up listening to punk rock, and you know, we had guys that played in a whole bunch of different, you know, LA and Orange County punk rock bands, and it was just, you know, it was fun. But we were playing shows like, you know, I remember we played a show. And on the marquee, it said Ricky Rackman. I was like, no, I don't want people to know. I mean, I want people just to go and watch the band and just be like, is that that guy that was like on Headbangers Ball? You know, right. because especially because we weren't playing metal, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it never, we never really did that much, but we, I had a lot of fun doing it. Was it more of the style of a social discourseion kind of yeah, like, it was. punk thing? I mean, I don't like to think that it was, but... The singer of TSOL saw our first show, and he said it was a cross between the Plimsolls and Metallica, <laughs> which was kind of odd. So I guess it was kind of like a – I hate to use the word poppy punk because now there is poppy punk because it wasn't that type of stuff. But it was – you know, you could tell there was some social distortion, maybe a little Agent Orange and a little bit of everything in it, you know. Right. Now, 
Now, having your history with Headbangers Ball, do you think you're unfairly positioned as the hair metal guy? I hate the term hair metal. hear it all the time. Um, I am in every sense of the word. For instance, uh, I love Outlaw Country. Right. I even hate using I hate using anything in a genre. I listen to rock and roll, but so you know, a, a good friend of mine is Shooter Jennings, and I'll go see Shooter Jennings play all the time. And some people would stop me and say, "Why are you at a Shooter Jennings show?" Right. Or why are you at you know a Jerry Lee Lewis show? Or why are you at a Lana Del Rey show or whatever? I love music. Um, I hosted a heavy metal show. And I would say that that is what I am, without a doubt, that's what I'm associated with more. But if you like something that's different, it's like those hardcore metal kids, you know, they turn on you. You know, when they don't understand that I'm driving in a truck with the guitarist of Lamb of God who's just listening to the Beatles. Right. You know, I listen, I would say that I'm known as that metal guy, and I just like being the rock guy, even though, you know, I think that with what we did with Cat House and, and everything else was more helping the hard rock scene. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I love music. It, it's I don't mind being called the metal guy. If somebody says, hey, we're going to ask you to host a show, do you want to bring on, you know, right? Slipknot or do you want to bring on, you know, I don't know, any Drake? Obviously, right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do the Slipknot stuff. I'm going to do the metal stuff more than I'm going to do anything else because that's how people associate with me. And I'm fine with that. I'm fine that, you know, if there's an Ozzy show, I'm going to be on the stage watching Ozzy show as a fan. Right, but the same thing happens if I'm going to go see Lucinda Williams. Mm-hmm. You know, I listen to I love music, and sometimes I'm not in the mood to listen to Slayer. Sure. <laughs> so you know, I might wake up early in the morning and want to hear Billie Holiday. I mean, music. It's like I don't go to 31 Flavors and just have Rocky Road every week. Right. Sometimes I don't feel like Rocky Road. Sometimes I might want to sorbet. Okay, <laughs> sure. that's probably never going to happen that I'd want to sorbet, but I'm using that as an example. Sure. I guess, I guess the question goes back to uh, the term that you hate. And the reason I say hair metal, I mean, I hate the term too, but what, what I found interesting is when you got started in 86 with the Cat House mm-hmm. and, and everything that followed that, that was a grittier, harder rock, Guns N' Roses, Faster Pussycat. Whereas prior to that, in like 83, was the Def Leppards, the Guns N' Roses, the... Um, you know, the uh, rat right. was the kind of the hair. Yeah, you no, know, see, I, I like I said, I, I hate the term hair metal because I think it's demeaning. I think when somebody says the term hair metal, they're talking about a band that has no substance. And when you say, well, Skid Row is a great hair metal band. Skid Row is a great rock and roll band. Cinderella is a great bluesy rock and roll band. And when you say hair metal, I think it, of more of those like kind of one-hit wonders that just came up with that big poofy hairdos and didn't have, you know, it came out with a rock song and then a ballad. And uh, that's what I think of as, as hair metal, right. you know. When Cat House opened, we were more towards the grittier side, like you said, you know, the Faster Pussycats, the L.A. Guns, the Junkyards. Those bands were the bands that were playing the Cat House, and it was more of the... We've called we call it the gypsy junkie scene. That's what it it was more like. Right. Instead of even though a lot of those bands did play, you know, Warren did play the Cat House, Poison did play one of our shows, but um, you know, I tried to stay away from those. Like I said, when I hear hair metal, you know, just like I don't like people saying, "Well, Soundgarden was a good grunge band." No, Soundgarden was a killer rock and roll <laughs> band. You know, sure. So. Yeah, I mean, nobody <clears throat> no one likes to to be you know pigeonholed by the genre. Right. Name that I guess the media will ever. Will and it's it. so bizarre. It's almost like, you know, 
the vegans don't like the carnivores, and it's almost like if you're a metal guy, you got to be metal guy, right? You know, and the, but the metal people are set into different genres too. Like if you like Norwegian death metal, you can't like this. Except now, I think it's changing. You know that I talk to a lot of guys that are into you know real heavy bands that, that love bands like Faster Pussycat, right? You know, mm-hmm. so um, let's get into the Cat House. How did that come to be? I started off. I was I was a club DJ. Um, playing, and I was I was a good DJ. I would do mixing and scratching before it became hip for white guys to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was I started off carrying records for other DJs, and you know it, it, it was cool because you know I wasn't a popular guy when I was a punker. So all of a sudden I'm playing parties and chicks are talking to me. So <clears throat> I started working with some different club promoters and start promoting a club here and there. And primarily, I would like promote a dance club and make it a little bit different. But it was a it was a dance club, and uh, you know the only people that would ever like Izzy would hang out with me in the DJ booth before. And I brought Tamey down a whole bunch of stuff, and and Steve West that's in the band Danger Danger, bands like that that would come down and hang out with me in these dance clubs. And I had this idea to do a rock and roll dance club that basically was a dance club that just played rock and roll, nothing else. And I'd become friends with Tamey. And Tammy was just starting his band, Faster Pussycat. We were roommates. And I'm like, dude, I want to open up this club. Use my skills of, of promoting and marketing and hitting the streets. And you help me get some of the local people there. And you help me get the chicks there. And we worked together on that and opening it up. And his main concern was Faster Pussycat, obviously. Right. My main concern was the cat house. So he was very influential in the early days in getting that thing going. And then I took it another step level and kept working. And he's always been, you know, he's always a part of the cat house. But after the first year, I, I changed it to, it was Ricky and Tammy's world famous cat house. I changed it to Ricky Rackman's world famous cat house. And uh, people still think of it as being, you know, Tammy's club, which I have, right. no, I have no problem with at all because I love Tammy. And uh, so this rock and roll dance club was just doing good and you know we wouldn't have a lot of people there but you know the people would be like axel you know right. it'd be people dancing on the floor and they liked it uh, a friend of mine del james referred to it as the place that the misfits felt safe because it was a dilapidated old disco that you'd walk in and your feet would fall through the stairways and i mean this is really the way it was i did not know what i was doing but i was doing it you know right. and then how quick a study were you in terms of running a business i am the master of bs if you believe in yourself you can bs your way through it and you have to be good at it not everybody can do it but i've done that way i mean i never went to school to take radio and it's still weird when i'll do like a a sports show and everybody and somebody will say like oh radio legend i'm like <laughs> i'm a radio because le- i could not realizing that my the radio show i do now has been on 15 years right you know that i hosted loveline and that i did all these radio shows that were very successful and i that's like radio legend i'm just that guy that was on tv you know it's still weird to hear people say that um i just faked my way through it and I, i've always done that and uh i i've never been able to fake my way into something that i didn't believe 110 percent in you know i couldn't have done a a, sh- a club that you know was going towards the hip-hop community right, right. because i didn't really know that community that well so i just kind of bs my way through it and then guns and roses wanted to do a record release party for the live like a suicide ep before they had the big record deal and so we did it, and, I, and they said, well, we're going to play. He goes, let's set up some, some guitars, and we'll play acoustically. And I was like, and this was before Unplugged. 
So so Guns N' Roses said they do it. And then I had Faster Pussycat. He goes, well, we'll do it too. And then LA Guns said they'll do it. And this band Jet Boy, they said they'll do it. And we'll all play acoustically and we'll all just have fun. And it was great. And there were like 600 people there that night. Well, then Faster Pussycat wanted to do their record release party at the Cat House. And then they played live. And then before you know it, you know, everybody wanted to play the Cat House because I was like very strict on who would play. Right. We ended up, that building got condemned. We had to go to another club. And then I had uh, the first night, which was actually the first year anniversary. I had all these bands play, every kind of rock band play the grand opening. But then more and more people wanted to play the Cat House. And then, you know, you have... So, I'm sorry, the original was one year before The original was closed, one year before we got shut down. Okay. So we were on, uh, on 333 La Cienega in Beverly Hills, which is right by where the Beverly Center is now. Okay. And then we were at 836 North Highland, which was like a hardcore gay club on a certain night. So we just took it over the other night because the rock people weren't going to that gay club. So I said, okay, let's take this over. And, you know, for people, people think that I owned the building. I did not own the building. Right. I would go to an existing building and say, look, you keep the bar, I'll keep the door. And maybe sometimes I'll keep part of the bar if I was lucky enough to get that deal. So you're never paying even a lease at all? Or mm-hmm. like, did you have, was the cat house on the outside at, at any yeah, point? Yeah, I'd hang up banners and, every, and I'd hire my own staff. Okay. I had my own security. I'd have my own, you know, everybody that worked at the club. But, I ended up booking every. I did everything myself, and eventually the club started getting big. And I had an office on Sunset. I had an office on Highland and Hollywood, and I hired like this friend Joey, and then Troy, and then my receptionist was Shannon Hoon, who was the singer of Blind Melon. He was my receptionist, you know. So then everything just started getting bigger. And the next thing you know, Black Crows are paying to play the club, and we're getting every band you could possibly imagine. Everybody wanted to play the club. The club became very famous. And also because I had a very strict no camera rule, mm-hmm. so people were just doing decadent stuff, and it was this place that was just like the most. And, and I say this without it's trying not to sound cliche, but the most beautiful women in the world came to the cat house because this is where all the strippers and the mud wrestlers went when they weren't working. Right, and that's where all the rock stars and were that and, out. and and they both and the girls went there because the rock stars went there and the rock stars went there because we had the best looking girls and it, and I don't. When I say that, it's like, Cat House had the hottest chicks. It did. And anybody that went there knows that. So much that we were written about in Women's Wear Daily, in um, California Apparel News, all these fashion magazines started doing stories about how these women that were attorneys and very successful women would go there, dress sleazy, and play a part and have fun. And it wasn't... And it, it wasn't demeaning to women. It was honoring women, and it was honoring women that were, in, that were very intelligent in great positions and could come down and be dumb and right. be sleazy and have fun. And we capitalized on that. Yeah, and this is the 80s. I mean, the 80s was a very colorful time. Oh, my time God, in, yes. In terms of This was fashion. 86. <laughs> this was 86 when, um, I mean, I remember on our fifth anniversary was when Freddie Mercury died of AIDS. So that's when the first like kind of rock star passed away from AIDS, right. and and we weren't really worried about that. And this was you know this was this were dangerous times. Um, so you're you started at like tw- this was about twenty one and on when yeah. you, when you did this, yeah. Um, and soon after, you went through a period of where you had to get sober relatively quickly, right? To- yeah, I would have died. Yeah, I was, was that the first couple of years into it, or yeah, it was like the first year and a half. The first year and a half, I was heavily drinking, heavily using crystal meth. Um, I did everything but needles. I didn't do heroin. If I kept on going, of course, I would have gone to that. 
But I mean, I I start drinking at a very very early age, and I so I got sober after just freaking out after staying. You know, when Slash tells you that you're a bad influence on Axel, you're like, wow, I've got a drug problem. You know, <laughs> that's your rock. Bottom. I mean, that really happened. <laughs> they were playing the Cat House, and Slash was like, dude, you're because me and Axel stayed up five nights straight. And I and, and and a lot of these people that drank and did drugs didn't have a problem, you know. I did. I was going in my closet, closing the door, and doing coke or doing meth. And eventually, I got sober. I had to, but the addiction, you know, just because you stop drinking and stop doing drugs doesn't mean you're an addict. You're mm-hmm. not an addict anymore. And my at my addiction turned to business. And I focused on doing what I could to make Cat House huge, to be make a start a big merchandise company with Cat House shirts, open up another club called Bordello, and just worked my ass off way more than I had to do, right. way more than I had to. Did you have to go to a clinic to, to get sober? Um, I had a drug counselor. I was going to AA and an A and CA for a while, and I went to meetings for a while and um, continued to go to meetings, but I never went to rehab. And... What I believe, this what kept me sober is, I started getting successful. Mm-hmm. I started, you know, from a guy that that was borrowing a car and driving this little Honda 250 motorcycle around town to a guy that's in the dealership buying a brand new convertible Corvette. I believed honestly that if I got loaded, my higher power or God or whatever you want to call it is going to stop giving me all these gifts. Right. And I believe that I was like the Midas touch. Like everything I did turned to gold. And then all of a sudden, I'm getting offered this job for the host of MTV Headbangers Ball. And I'm like, holy crap. And then all of a sudden, like I'm kind of famous. And I'm like, if I get loaded, and it was tough sometimes. I I truly believed that if I got loaded, I would lose everything. Right. And, um, And never lost that. Never, ever thought otherwise. And in 2001, I did lose everything, um, but I stayed sober, and, and now I'm doing okay. I'm, right. I just bought a house. I bought a house last week. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I'm walking around this house. I'm like, I'm a homeowner <laughs> with a boat slip. You know, this is a guy with no education, really, and just BSing his way through it and just believing in myself and being really scared of failing. But I'm still scared of failing. Right. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a good driver. Sometimes. Sometimes. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, what about, you know, you were around these bands before they got big and then they get big. What kind of, you know, this is, this is kind of the title of a show being Rockonomics. Mm-hmm. What, what did you, what did you observe at the time of, of how, I guess how they lived from going from literally nothing to, you know, I mean, Guns N' Roses, they right. shot through the roof and, and maybe they're a bad example, but just everyone else, you know, I getting, think they're the perfect example, getting record deals, getting money. It was so funny to just watch different cars that Axel had, you know, Axel, when he went, when he got, I think it was this bike blazer he had and he was like, I spent like five grand on the stereo in the back and he'd pull it up and then he had a convertible BMW and then it was like watching these guys. But the interesting thing is that is everybody was making money. With the exception of Motley Crue, I mean, Motley Crue spent money. Nikki Six, I remember when he went out and bought a Testarossa, 
and um, and I remember driving, and he burnt. He like stepped on the gas and spun it out because he didn't know how to drive a Testarossa. <laughs> and then they were all buying like really expensive Harley Davidsons that nobody ever rode. And uh, they were spending uh, motley guys were spending a lot yeah. of money. It's so funny; those cars are like the worst investment you could probably possibly make. As soon as you drive it off the lot, don't they're they hideous just, uh... anyway. They're hideous. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm, with the exception, I don't like. I like McLarens. That's the only supercar I like. Um, but the, those guys were spending a lot of money. It, I know Guns N' Roses were. Like I remember, you know, Axel had a fur coat when he bought this big, expensive fur coat. And that's kind of a funny story because we were walking around New York when he bought this fur. He had this fur coat, and I wanted a coat, so I bought this coat too. And uh, it rained and it stunk, and it was. It turned out my coat was made out of goat. It was a goat. So that was like his running joke was Ricky and his goat coat, you know, because I wouldn't buy a fur coat. But uh, yeah, they had money, and obviously, you know, when you see rock stars buying houses and you're going in house, like wow rock and roll buy you this house you know it's pretty good but you know there's a lot of people that I mean Slash is the same guy he was except he's not falling down the stairs like he used to right now we're just falling down the stairs because we're old (laughs) but uh, yeah you saw incomes and it was more like just you know I'm not I I didn't have to drive Steven Adler to to Long Beach when they opened up for Cheap Trick anymore right you know because now they had their own cars did you observe anybody who was good with money? Probably Izzy, I think, was good. Duff is probably good with money. Um, I wasn't, and I didn't make millions, million. I didn't make it close to that much, but I would buy stuff. Right. You know, like I'd, I'd spend my money, and I never bought a house and never bought anything because I'd spend money. And was- I don't know where in the world it went. You know, I know it's a different time, too, in the 80s with record deals and stuff, but was there ever conversations with these guys about kind of, you know, pulling the sheet off of the record business about how it works and how, you know, everything's pretty much a loan that you pay back? And I think everybody figured that out pretty, pretty quick. I mean, when you're growing up in L.A., you've got to be thick-skinned and you've got to be a businessman as well. And I know a lot of bands got ripped off and a lot of bands made money quick and then spent money quick. And the problem is that when you're famous, you don't want to go back and get a regular job. Right. You so you're you know finding ways to do whatever you can. And um, I think some people got smart. I think a lot of people got ripped off, you know. But mm-hmm. um, I think Izzy Izzy was pretty smart, and Duff still is pretty smart when it comes to the business sense. But it's yeah, a, that's interesting to hear. Um, so let's get to Headbangers Ball. I know it's. Uh, Everyone kind of knows the story of Axel, you know, kind of facilitating um, you working there. Um, was that? Did you have to commute to New York to do that, or yeah. did you film in L.A.? No, I flew to New York. Did I you go to New York, New York like every once a week? Every ten days. Every ten days, I would fly to New York. I'd get there. I'd leave Thursday. I'd wake up early in the morning, tape my show, and fly back. So I'd be in New York less than twenty four hours usually. And only you'd only do one show at a time. I do two shows, two, two shows, shows at a time. time. Okay. And then some. T- then for a short time, we like when Nirvana was on, we we shot in L A. And then we'd do stuff like, uh, okay, you're going to London, you're going to Japan, you're going to Brazil. You know, I mean, it was so incredible. Who'd you trust the Cat House to? Or Bordello when you this were guy, I had a friend named Joey, okay. and Joey was working with me, and at that time, I had to because – and it used to drive him crazy because I'd be calling up like, it's 10 o'clock. How many people are here? How many people are there? And I'd call him all the time you know, because I – I mean, I worked too hard 
I worked harder than I needed to for the cat house. Much harder than I needed to. What was the capacity of the cat house? Um, I know we were always a little bit over. And I'd say what we usually did is we did about 620 people every Tuesday night. And then on rare occasions when we'd have, you know, a huge band play, we'd do over that. But we had to be careful because of the capacity and because of the cops. Because if when we had, you know, we're talking about a club that fits 600 people and all of a sudden you've got Guns N' Roses playing the day before they're playing opening up for the Rolling Stones, right. you've got, you know, problems, or Alice in Chains, or, or <clears throat> the one where we couldn't be over, <laughs> the one that we couldn't be over capacity at all was when Body Count released Cop Killer. They were banned from Los Angeles. They were not allowed to play anywhere. So I tease at the cat house. I'm like, you want to play a show here? He's like, Ricky, we're not supposed to play. And I go, dude, you can play here. So we had Body Count play right when Cop Killer was released. And I'll be damned if we didn't go four under capacity. I mean, we were positive we stayed under because all the cops were there for that night. Did they try to shut you down? They wanted to. The cops were there, but they, they didn't. Couldn't. They did. We knew they would want to. <clears throat> so, you know, you the ABC, which is the Alcohol Beverage Corporation or whatever, center or whatever they are, they own you. If they're if you know when you see a fire truck pull in front of your club, you're you're scared, right? Because they can shut you down at any given time. It's like everybody out the back door, right? Right? <laughs> right? Um, so back to Headbangers Ball. How how did that work? Was it a? I mean, were you were you reading a teleprompter or were you? Yeah, when I started, you know? because I didn't have any TV background. When I started, I showed up and they put makeup on me and they made my hair big and you know talked about the clothes and and I didn't know what to do. I really didn't know what to do. And I'm watching some of those first shows and I cringe. But the funny thing is, the first show, my hair just looked horrible and I had a L.A. Kings hat and a leather jacket on, but I had a germ shirt on. So I kind of like even the first show, I had my punk rock roots, you know, underneath (laughs) and. I was pretty nervous and and did not know how to interview. Really, I mean, I watched interviews that are that well my third year and I never knew how to interview. I mean, I think I'm I'm really good at it. Who was your first? The first show I believe, I know I had Michael Shanker group on and Michael Shanker kept on playing guitar and it was driving me crazy. And then I think I had Anthrax on the first show and I think I said like, "Did you invent the word mosh?" because I always knew it as slam dancing. Right. So, I was terrible and the first couple episodes i mean i got a lot of crap from people and and it was justified because at that time i was interviewing people instead of having conversations with them but then down the line as i got more comfortable and i didn't even look at a card they would write stuff about the band like four things and i didn't even look at those things i just Mm -hmm. went in like if if like you're supposed to go on the air at at noon i'd show up at 11 30 wouldn't even go hair makeup i'd just walk right on there and just start talking to the bands and early on the band's knew that they could give me a hard time. Right. The bands knew that I could be the butt end of the joke. And it could have been really easy for me to say, screw you. You know, I'm Ricky Rackman, man. Don't be. But I was like, this is entertaining. Sure. So if you guys want to make me the butt end of the joke, make me the butt end of the joke. And I don't care as long as people are watching it. So if somebody like Dave Mustaine from Megadeth, which was notorious for giving me a hard time, what people didn't realize is that we were friends. One time it got out of hand, and I called him out on the air, and he apologized. But Dave Mustaine would always be giving me a hard time. Now, I could have said, you know, Dave, you're really disrespecting me. This is my show. Right. But I let him do it every time and sometimes would do things to let him do it. And I saw Dave probably six months ago, and he's like, you know, Ricky, 
we were like the Abbott and Costello <laughs> on, on MTV. And it's true. People love – if you ask people, oh, who did, hated Ricky the most? And they're going to say Megadeth and they're going to say Danzig. Well, Danzig's playing my birthday party. They're playing at Bordello. People didn't realize that the people that, that liked me were the ones giving me the hardest time and – they were allowed to. And my job was not to be confrontational. Right. My job was let Glenn Danzig act like he's going to throw me in the fireplace. Right. You know, I knew when he said, before we go on the air, I don't want anybody talking about the misfits. And we go on the air and I say, why don't you just do a misfit show? I knew he wanted to throw me in the fireplace. But what they don't know is that Glenn was my friend. And these are the people... It was good being the butt end of a joke because it made it entertaining. And if it meant that people would say, you suck, Ricky, Dave Mustaine hates you, go right ahead and say that because I got news for you. Not a lot of people stopped me and asked me about my interviews with Lars, which were great because Lars is a great guy. And Metallica was very complimentary and they're so nice. But people don't ask me about that. They love talking about Dave Mustaine because he always gave me a hard time. So if that's what it takes... For it to be entertaining and for people to remember it, so be it. You know. How was the your crew with MTV? Were they giving you notes, or did you have a trusted? They producer did it. They or? did it. They gave me notes at first. Um, it was a great, great crew. I loved everybody, and I've had some great people. I had, um, I had Dan Cortez. Right. He worked for me. For he was holding cue cards when I was doing remotes. Don Jameson, who ended up being on the metal show, worked on the Headbangers Ball. I had great producers and great people, and uh, you know, I loved I loved the people that I work with. I mean, what I missed is going in there and traveling, and you know, I, I don't know. If, sometimes I don't know if I handled everything correctly because I was having bouts of depression, and and you know, I was like egotistical and very very down on myself at the same time, right? You know, because it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing when. You know, I'll never forget walking through the airport and somebody said, Ricky Rackman. And I realized at that minute, wait, that guy doesn't know me. Right. And it was at that moment that my name wasn't my name anymore, that my name was a product. Right. That Ricky Rackman means something rather than, oh, the guy that lives down the street that likes to watch the races, that rides motorcycles. You know, all of a sudden you become like a product and people have... People like Coke. People don't like Coke. Everybody has a different idea on what this product is, right. and they're sure about it when they don't even know me. Right. You know, it's hilarious. Aren't you glad you didn't? It was there was no uh, <coughs> Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Back then, then, yes, <laughs> but now I'm still very active on it, and so I'll get the people that are talking smack. And <clears throat> the thing that I learned recently is when you are somewhat of a public figure. There are different laws that apply to you as far as people ripping you apart on social media. For instance, if somebody was to say something very mean about my sister on the internet, she has recourse that she could sue them for it. And if they say something about me, I have to take it with the exception that I recently just learned when some people were saying some stuff that was very personal and based on lies that I did have recourse if I wanted to. But Mm -hmm. I just also learned – delete and erase and block yeah. and, and it goes away because people don't care when people are talking about all the depressed stuff this that they don't care they yeah. don't want to hear about that stuff and i have a, a group of they call they they call themselves a rack pack people that follow me on the internet and uh i never say the word fans i hate the word fans but they're just a good group of people to support everything i do whether it's riding across the country or whatever it is and they can see through the bs right. and that that's what matters a lot to me 
Did they come to your defense online when somebody? Oh yeah! Oh God! Do not rip me to shreds on the internet because they will rip you apart. But now I, 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 you know, someone told me that just ignore it. Don't, don't get confrontational with it because even if somebody says something stupid, you know, for me to go back and say something against them, even though that's what I want to do, because I'll win every verbal battle, it still takes effort and just block any race. That's what they want too. You're you're giving attention to, you know, the the problem that we have, and and sometimes Ice-T does this a lot, that you could get 20,000 people saying really good things about you, and then two people say something really bad, and that person to me is right. That's the guy that's right. So I'm going to talk to that person. Not the 20,000 that are saying really nice things. I just block them, block them. And, you know, those people that have said nice things, I read every one of them, and it makes me feel great. So I'm trying not to focus on the powerless dorks that are out there posting stuff that don't have the balls to ever confront me in person you know the the internet is given the weak and timid muscles right you know to say whatever they want well put very well put um did you get along with the other vjs uh let me guess um kennedy yes duff yes uh carson daly yes Adam Curry and I, I think everybody wanted a big feud between me and Adam Curry, and I respected Adam Curry. I think, I might be wrong, but I think he like kind of invented the podcast. He did something. Yeah, yeah. He's a big... So he's a big deal. So he's very intelligent. And everybody wanted cause... And then we did a TV show together, and he kind of ripped into me a little bit, but I don't... Th- I think if he didn't like me, I can understand why I did take his job. But most of the VJs, come to think of it, there weren't any I didn't like Polly Shore at all. Me and Polly Shore hated each other. Other than that, I really don't think there was anything. Fab Five Freddy was cool, Bill Bellamy was cool. I mean these are all people that if so I funny saw to hear those names again, I couldn't Yeah. Even. I mean Martha Quinn was great, but people like the Mark Goodmans and those people, they didn't really acknowledge me. They mm-hmm. wouldn't I mean if they if I was walking down the street, I don't know if they'd even say anything to me. But, you know, it was it was odd that it, at nineteen in like 1994 <clears throat> that other than Cindy Crawford I was getting like more mail than anybody I mean a lot of it might have been hate mail but like <laughs> like at that era Kennedy who's brilliant Kennedy was the most liked and most hated VJ on MTV right. you're brilliant when you're the most liked and you're the most hated as well that's what you want you know it's interesting when they're that polarizing I'd be interested to hear from the executives who were they happy with that. I guess anytime, anytime you're getting, it's like there's no thing as such thing as bad press. Anytime you're getting feedback, it's feedback of somebody who's participating and watching and engaging. So, By the way, that's not always true. There is such thing as bad press. I can tell you, there <laughs> we'll, is bad press. We'll get there in a minute. Oh, great. <laughs> so, at the same time, Loveline's happening. A couple of years in, right? What happened with Loveline was Loveline was on last an- in Los Angeles, a huge radio show. It was. It was hosted by Dr. Drew and a guy called The Poor Man. And they'd bring guests in and they would talk to people. Kids would call in about, I masturbate too much. Oh, is it weird that I do this? And it was was very shocking, but it was also real stuff because you had Dr. Drew there. So one day, Poor Man kind of freaked out, did some weird stuff on the radio. And they asked me to be a guest that time. While he was out there remote doing weird stuff, they asked me to be a guest. And they liked me. So they said, hey. I think we're going to can this guy who had been there for a while. Would you be interested in staying on as a guest host? Well, I was a host of Headbangers Ball, but would I interested in 
just sitting here and walking in the show starts you walk in in five minutes you interview guests right. you talk to dr drew and you take calls so i did it for a while and the show got huge and then they got picked up after being on the show forever and they couldn't syndicate it while i was on it the show got syndicated and it it blew up it had an in radio it had a 19 share in los angeles which is unheard of it was so huge so all of a sudden i was a host on loveline and i had interviewed and that was a show that really taught me how to have conversations with people because i would have julio iglesias one day and then i would have you know pennywise in the next day and i was interviewing everybody because loveline was huge and then it was on five days a week so me and dr drew had this great relationship and the show was ridiculous. It was so huge, and I loved doing that show. And it was the easiest show I ever did. I would show up five minutes before we went on the air, and I was the only one there because there was no prep whatsoever. You take calls. I was very open about sex. I like talking about sex. I love sex. I was very open about drugs. I was very open about relationships. I was, I was very open on the microphone and giving people what, my, what I believed was good, good advice. Sometimes it wasn't. Then all of a sudden, there was a Loveline TV show was pitched, and I didn't like the. De- I was advised that the deal was very bad, so I didn't take it. I don't know if that attorney gave me good advice or not, but they decided to bring in Adam Carolla. Mm-hmm. So they decided to start this relationship with Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew, so they would have Ricky Rackman, Dr. Drew, and Adam Carolla on Loveline for a while. That went on for a while, and then I decided, you know what? I'm having a great time making good money. But I want to see what else I can do. I want to start my own show called Ricky Rackman Radio. I'm going to do a talk radio show. Pure talk. Mm -hmm. Different topics, different guests, different segments, everything, you know. So I left Loveline, which was leaving a good-paying job. And they were very surprised. And uh, a radio station that was on the air in L.A. at the time called KLSX, which was FM Talk Radio. They started, they were doing okay. They had Howard Stern in the morning, which they were dominating mornings, but their afternoon drive guy was Kato Kalin. And I ended up taking Kato Kalin's job. Kato Kalin's a nice guy. I mean, we love to rip apart Kato Kalin, but then I met him and talked to him, and what a good guy he was. He really was. I think his talent was he was a good hang. I think that's what it might have been. He was a good hang for OJ. I like Kato. (laughs) Kato Kalin was a good guy, so I did FM talk radio. Five days a week, and uh, you know, then my life just got out of control with relationships and everything. But you're at the height of your power in terms of you had Headbangers Ball. You have the Love Headbangers Ball had, had just had okay. Headbangers Ball had ended while I was doing Love Line. But you've got plenty of ears to pitch to get this. There talk were people show. pitching TV shows to me left and right. Um, I did a pilot for a talk show called Ricky Rackman. That was a TV talk show and. And uh, it was alive in front of an audience. My guest on my pilot was uh, first guest was Adam West, Batman, and Martha Quinn. And uh, it was it was it was like at a time that I was in the L.A. game. I was driving, taking meetings, and you know I felt I still felt like that Hollywood street kid, like out of place. Right. But I was doing the had the, an agent. The, the, had the, all oh, had it all. Had it all. Thought this is great, but it's a messed up job. It's a messed up life because you know you doing jobs and you're going out on auditions for jobs that if you get this job this is going to be life changing and you just sit there and wait and I'm currently right now there's a TV show that 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 it's a it's a sports thing that I'm up for that I have to wait till next week and I can't book anything 
to find out if I'm going to get it or not. And I'm in that position that I used to be in many years ago. And I hate it because if I get this job, it, it'll be – I don't think it's going to be life-changing, but it's going to be a big career move for me, right. something I'm very excited about. But I might not get it. It's a very good chance I might not get it. So that's the, the thing about that career. I mean it's – that's the business. It never changes. You're always waiting for you know, that, the green light from somebody else or some other entity. And the problem is because I had such success, you know, it's hard to do things sometimes that aren't very successful. Like I don't know right. if I want to go do, you know, I don't know. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so let's uh, – and, and you can leave out whatever details. but the, I won't the, leave out anything. The, the bad press. So it ended poorly for you yeah. at the radio yeah. show. I had a uh, – I had – I was doing talk radio at the time. I was uh, my girlfriend worked in adult films, which my mom did not like. Um, and it was a very it was a very uh, destructive relationship. And I'm not putting the blame on her. We were just I mean she's a beautiful woman, and we just kind of went back and forth, and we we fought a lot. And it was just the type of people that we were. It's not saying anything bad about her. And I also had a lot of battles with depression and. <clears throat> feeling that my career should have been bigger than it was, even though it was great. You know, right. I was making good money, and I was driving these cars and everything. And, were you, uh, were you <clears throat> seeing anybody, it's, uh, getting help or uh, no. prescription drugs? No, not at that time, no. And um, I wasn't, no, I was just a mess. And uh, one time some of the other DJs were talking smack about me, and they were going back and forth. And, you know... As much as it was a stupid thing what I did, I understand why I did it. I was in a bad place. Mm-hmm. I'd been fighting with my girlfriend a lot. And then these DJs start saying bad things about me. And they start saying bad things about her. And she was like, you know, I didn't want to get called into this. And I think she walked in on the air one time when this whole battle was going on, all this stuff. So I had the weekend to think about it, and the next day, uh, Monday came in, and I walked into the studio and I beat the shit out of, beat the crap out of the, right. beat the crap <clears throat> out of the guy. We're explicit. Yeah, I, I beat I beat him up, <clears throat> and uh, and broke his nose. And cops came in and took me to jail, and uh, she bailed me out of jail. I think it was like two hundred bucks. So it was the top story in the news in Los Angeles. Our top story tonight, talk radio. Now, what I didn't understand is that talk radio hosts like to talk smack about each other. You know, you listen to a guy like Howard Stern who's ripping apart all the yeah. people on his cast, even though he really loves them. But, you know, sometimes you'll hear people talk about – I, I listen to talk radio and I'll hear other hosts talk bad about other hosts of other shows, Stern and Imus, you know uh, – Opie and Anthony would rip apart. I mean, people are ripping apart. Well, these guys are ripping me apart, but they were saying mean things, how right. I should die, you know, how I should get hit by a gas, just all this stuff. And just, I, just the way I grew up, you know, I'm not a tough guy, obviously, but I went down there and I was just, and I, I beat the hell out of them. And, and thinking that when I got bailed out of jail, that all of a sudden I'm like, hey, radio bad boy, look, there actually is a radio bad boy now. But, when you do something like that with Infinity Broadcasting, if I was to go work for somebody else and I got in another fight, they would they could be sued for hiring somebody that they know commits violence in the workplace. Right. So I I was unhirable at anything. 
and um, I went from making you know three hundred grand a year to making zero a year, and you know being Ricky Rackman from Headbangers Ball and all these shows wasn't helping me. I could not get a job, so I had to get a job. So I tried everything I could, whether it be trying to resurrect the cat house or res- whatever it was, and nothing was working. And I ended up getting a job as a car salesman. And I'm in brief- I remember even going to a Dodge dealership and filling out an application and getting turned down. Right. A car dealership will hire anybody. So I, lived, uh, I was living with Janine, the girl at the time. And I was just and, – and pretty much she was supporting me. And when you're already a depressed guy and you have a girl that was doing, you know, taking naked pictures or or da- featuring in dance clubs and you don't want your girlfriend doing that, but she's the one paying the bills, right. I felt like a, just a spineless wimp. I felt terrible. And I got a job selling cars and I was selling Volkswagens in the beach and, you know, people would go up and say, hey, are you Ricky Rackman from Headbangers Ball? And I'm like, yeah, let me show you this new Jetta. I was a terrible car salesman. I mean, it's very – it's. I don't know if anybody's ever said this to you before, but it's very admirable because you can't, you know, you can't sit around and, and I can't wait for money to show no, up at your door. No, and so many people do. And I'm, you know, the, and then Tom Likas, who is a big talk radio host, who's just a piece of crap. Tom Likas, when I got arrested, just started ripping me to shreds on the air. Oh, Tom, hey, Tom Likas. And you do all this stuff. And matter of fact, he started ripping me apart on the air. And then... When he found out that I was working on a, at a Volkswagen dealership, he just used me as a ta- – I don't know. I think he got throat cancer or something, which obviously that's not funny, and I'm sad that happened. But he was he was very Karma. successful on talk radio or something. But he would go like, you know, and Ricky Ragman's now selling Volkswagens. I guess we could call his new show Breakfast at the Beatles because he's selling Beatles. And he would do all this stuff and this and that. So he's saying all this smack about me, right? Well, then I go to an L.A. hockey game. I'm going at the Kings, and Tom Likas is sitting right in front of me. And I was married at the time. And, uh, and my wife is just saying, you know, don't do anything. And I was so pissed off, and he's sitting in front of me, and he knew I was right behind him. So I went up to him, and I said, <laughs> like an idiot, I went up to Tom Likas. I'm like, hey, you got a pro- do you have a problem with me? And he's like, Ricky, you know it's just all radio bits, and it's all this, and you know I don't have it. Hey, no, it goes to shake my hand. I just look at him like, figures and I walked to him like you con you know if I'm going to say anything bad about somebody on the radio it's because I mean it I don't do anything for a bit if I say something that's shocking it's because that's the way I am I handled myself poorly I was very unprofessional I didn't get violent and I'm not a violent person I don't do that because I learned my lesson you know I learned a lesson from I mean I was collecting unemployment. You hear about MC Hammer going bankrupt but still living in a mansion. I did not. I lived in a small house that was being paid for by my girlfriend at the time, and I couldn't make a car payment. I couldn't pay anything. And I remember going to a NASCAR race with my friends, and I tried to go to the ATM to get a Coke. I didn't even have any money in my ATM. I mean, we're talking broke, 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 broke. (laughs) Who, Who was there for you in terms of your friends at the time? Not that they need to help you out financially, but still taking your calls or checking in to see if you're doing okay. I think I probably had the same friends. Um, I don't think my friends cared because my the friends that were my friends, it's funny, like I have the same <clears throat> dregs of society friends that I did back then, which was funny because a lot of them are big dudes 
And then when I got on TV, everybody's like, oh, he can't go anywhere without his bodyguards. I'm like, no, I can't go anywhere without my friends. They're the same friends I've always had. I don't think anybody, you know. Or any of your famous friends, put it that way. Any of your, the, you know, the crew from the cat house or. When I beat up the DJ, it's funny. When I beat up the DJ, Axel called me to see if I needed an attorney. And I had, that was the last time I spoke with him. So, um. I don't know. My sister, who's very success, my sister was very successful doing music supervision for films. She did Quentin Tarantino's movies. She was working on Bullworth, and she walked in the studio. and Warren Beatty said, "Is your brother Ricky Rackman?" Yeah, we should see what we could do for him because people understood what I did. I what it looked like was I was standing up for the honor of my girl, right. and that I was sick of people talking smack on the radio. Um, but nobody really helped me financially or really gave me jobs you know i i couldn't get a job and the first person that really that i was selling cars not doing very well at it um trying to do radio and then all of a sudden uh jason hervey from the wonder years was sitting next to me at the king's game he sat next to me for years and he was like hey would you ever think about working for a world championship wrestling for WCW I'm like I love wrestling <laughs> so I got this goofy job working for WCW but it brought some money in for a couple of years and then I kind of created the radio show Racing Rocks how did that how did that come about how did you I've always loved NASCAR I've always loved NASCAR I remember going to NASCAR races when I was on Headbangers Ball and saying one day I'm going to find a way to work in NASCAR which at the time in the mid 90s was like you're a Hollywood guy why would you like this southern sport and then the sport grew, right. and um, I had this idea of doing a radio show, playing rock and roll, and talking about NASCAR the same way I talked about ra- videos. Instead of talking about technical stuff, I talked about the personalities of the sport. And then this lady that worked with this company at United Stations kind of asked me if I wanted to host the show that was my idea, sort of. And I said yes, because I needed a job. And it started slow, and it just picked up and picked up, and the show got bigger and bigger and bigger, and then Racing Rocks took off, and then I'm getting hired by NASCAR.com, and then I'm working at racetracks and working with Chevrolet, and then all of a sudden, like, you know, somebody saw I did a Periscope, and somebody said, oh, I just had Headbangers Ball money paid off, but you got your own house now. I'm like, people, you don't know. I mean, (laughs) like 90% of this is from my work with motorsports. And that goes back to early 2000s? Yeah. Right? I've done Racing Rocks, so which is still hard to believe that I've been doing this show 15 years, and I don't know what I'm doing. But it's still <laughs> – it's, it's great. And it's, you know, it's on different rock stations across America. And, um, hey, if you live in a city that your radio show station doesn't have Racing Rocks, please tell them to get it because I talk about racing and play music. And I talk about racing the same way I talked about videos. That you know, When I talked about a band, I don't really care about the engineering or producing. And I don't care about aerodynamics and technical stuff. I care about why this driver doesn't like this driver, and this is so cool to go to this track. They eat these hot dogs. That's what these hot dogs are made out of. I mean, I talk about it. If you're not a race fan, you're still going to like Racing Rocks. So also during this time, um, from early 2000s to now, intermittently, uh, VH1, you did... Oh, my God. How did I forget about that stuff? I can't believe I but forgot that's, about that's that. that's like late. No, that's, that was before. I think that, that was, was 2007. No, no, no. I don't remember to- when it was. I guess I was do I forgot all about that. So or I like don't know M- why I forget about because that was a big part of my career. There's also MTV two. They never asked me to do anything. No, no. Oh, I thought maybe it no. Was they didn't, MTV didn't even let me host a goodbye headbangers ball. They'd bring me on to do like little guest spots and shows talking about right rock things here and there. 
But then what happened is they had the Rock of Love, and somebody said, hey, would you be interested in hosting the Rock of Love reunion? Which is they bring all the girls from Rock of Love and Brett Michaels, and I'm like the host, and I nailed it. I did a kick-ass job, and it became like Jerry Springer, and I was the Jerry Springer guy. And I'm not lying. I did a great job hosting those shows. I'm probably more proud of hosting those shows than anything else. And then they had me do the second Rock of Love reunion, and then they had me do the third Rock of Love reunion. And then they said – um, hey, we're going to do this show Charm School with the Rock of Love Girls. Would you be interested in being one of the judges? I'm like, I'm being a voice of reason. And it was me, Daniela Clark, who, who was married to Gilby Clark, but also starred Frankie B. Jeans and Sharon Osbourne. I did that show, and I didn't really like it that much. I mean, it was great because I love being on TV, but I didn't feel like I was really being me. Right. And then they pitched me Daisy of Love, which I said no. And then they brought me in the studio and they said, listen, you're going to be the guy on this show. It's Daisy, these guys, and you're like the voice of reason. You're going to be Daisy's confidant. You're going to do this and that. And I had a blast. <laughs> I loved doing the show Daisy of Love. And I mean, I still get recognized from being the Rock of Love reunion host. Was that a one season thing? With mm-hmm. Daisy? Daisy of Love. Daisy of Love was one season. And uh, it was just a blast. I loved doing that show. Loved it. Um, what about Sharon Osbourne? What do you have love Sharon. Okay. Sharon's the only one that I can think of. Maybe Jane Fonda, but Sharon Osbourne's the only one that's obviously had some work done, but just looks hot. Sharon Osbourne is hot. <laughs> Sharon Osbourne is she's powerful. You don't want to screw with Sharon Osbourne, but Sharon Osbourne is so nice, and I loved working with Sharon, and she just you know. She she's a good. I like Sharon a lot. I had had you known her but, for a long time? Yeah, through. Sharon Osbourne once asked me when I was doing Headbangers Ball and Black Sabbath was getting back together for the first time in a long time, and they're playing a show at Irvine Meadows, and I don't know, it was like twenty thousand people. It was just you. It was sold out, and people are just like ready to see Black Sabbath reunion with Ozzy singing, and the crowd is going nuts. They're ready to see Black Sabbath, and Sharon's like, "You're going to bring the band on." So I walk out there. And the crowd does not want to see Ricky Rathman. The crowd wants to see Black Sabbath with Ozzy. So I'm out there, and they're just like, uh, get out the stage. Right? And then Sharon goes, stall for five minutes. And I'm like, what? And that was the worst. Why don't you put a target on my head? That's the worst. I had to stall for five minutes. But, um, yeah, so I, I'd known Sharon from you know being working with Ozzy. First thing you got to say is, the band will be out in five minutes and then go into your stall. But they don't think that. <laughs> they think any time they see somebody, except now I bring on bands on shows, like I'll go do Carolina Rebellion or I'll go do you know some of these big festivals. And some of the people don't know who I am. It's surprising how many kids do know who I am. But I get a lot of love on stage. And that makes me feel really good. You know, I, I brought on Body Count at... Um, I don't know if it was Welcome to Rockville, one of the festivals, and the crowd went nuts, and I love that, you know. Is Headbangers Ball playing on repeat in any of the... No, No, it's on YouTube, and I think that's how, I mean, I get stopped by kids that say, dude, I loved you on Headbangers Ball. I'm like, I wasn't on TV when you were on, when you were born. (laughs) Exactly. You know, and they watch it on YouTube, because if you're a kid and you love, you know, Megadeth... And you search Megadeth, you're going to find Headbangers Ball. And then people are going to go, what was Headbangers Ball? And Headbangers Ball was just a badass show. It was the greatest. 
And I didn't realize then how important it was to people because I get stopped. I go to a lot of shows out here in Charlotte, and I go to a lot of shows all over America. And when people stop me and they say, dude, you turned me on to Pantera. And I'm like, I just played, you know, I didn't have any say in those videos. And you, you know, I grew up watching you. And that's where, you know, because I grew up watching Captain Kangaroo. So when people stop me, and especially when people look older than me and they say they grew up watching me, it's it. You don't you're, realize you're my Captain Kangaroo. You do, thank you, or you're Mister <laughs> Rogers. It's uh, I prefer to be your Oscar the Grouch, but um, it, it I didn't realize how important Headbangers Ball was to these people. Yeah, yeah. I was. I mean, I was a big fan. It's funny. Um, so we end every show with the same five questions. First question is, what's your most prized musical possession? My most prized musical possession. I do these big charity motorcycle rides every year that I go riding all over America on my motorcycle. And um, they, I, the first charity I picked was Farm Aid. And Farm Aid gave me a ticket for the very first Farm Aid event and the back of it signed by Willie Nelson. Oh, that's cool. I also have a denim jacket that I have that's, that, that Angus drew a little Angus on it. Brian Johnson signed it, Ozzy Osbourne, Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, the guys in Def Leppard, probably Alice Cooper. I have an Alice Cooper doll that Alice Cooper gave me for my birthday that signed Alice Cooper. That's pretty cool. Um, I got like I got a few golden platinum records. Did all that stuff make the move, or you have a storage back in California? It was not in the last house that I was in, but now that I am a homeowner, it's going up in the house. I mean, this <laughs> stuff is. I don't know what to do with the denim jacket. Um, is it? I'm going to frame both it. sides, right? Like yeah, but it's got like I mean, a, and, and it's all faded. Like the signatures right. are faded. Like the only reason, the only way I could tell that it was Angus's signature is he drew a little Angus on it. So that's pretty cool. I have a. Uh, it's kind of a, a rock. It's a, a Walking Dead guitar that's signed by Robert Kirkman, who created The Walking Dead. Uh, oh, okay, this is the, this is badass. Okay, <laughs> this is so cool. Didn't know um, who gave this to me at first. So I, I put stuff in boxes. I have so many boxes of, of, I don't know, collectibles or junk. I'm borderline hoarding. And I picked out this little clay figure. And it was of me with long hair, leather jacket. The back of the leather jacket said Cat House on it. And I'm holding a microphone with a little MTV cube. And I'm looking at this. I'm like, who gave this to me? Who made this? Because it's really good. And I'm like, who was it that made this for me? And I turn it over and it says Love Pearl Jam. And Eddie Vedder made that for me. Wow. And I didn't remember. I, I, I say this in, in all honesty. Like a lot of people ask why I don't write a book. I have real bad memory problems. Like really bad memory right. problems. And um, I didn't remember him giving it to me, but he did. So I would say that's pretty cool. All right. Second question is, if I were to give you a million dollars to give to a charity, one charity, who gets it? Okay, that's not fair. This is why. Because every year, I raise money for charities, okay? Last year, I raised $20,000 for Claire Wineland's foundation, mm-hmm. which was to help families with cystic fibrosis. Um, I, think I'm, I think I have the charity that I'm working with this year. I've raised money for... Uh, I... Wales in Captivity? I hate to say it because I know it's going to make people mad, but I think I would take that million dollars and use it towards helping to build a whale sanctuary, which is probably people are going to go, oh, the people with cancer, because I do a lot of stuff. I love raising money, mm-hmm. and on my ride, I haven't raised money for any of the things because I'm a, I'm a big anti-captivity activist as far as killer whales and dolphins and stuff like that. I don't know if I would have 
I, I don't do it for my ride because it's harder for me to raise money. But if I took a million, if I had a million dollars, I think I would I would help build a whale sanctuary or or blow up some dams so we could get more salmon so the killer whales can survive. I know that sounds like <laughs> such a hippie thing, but like I'm a killer whale freak. So how did that be, come about? Did you stumble upon a documentary at um, one time or when I was a little kid, I went to SeaWorld and I knew that I didn't like it. Right. And my whole life, for some reason, when I'd go to pet shops and I'd walk around fish aquariums, I felt uncomfortable. That was, and that was always like, there's interviews of me saying, I don't like fish. And I never knew why. And I always hated it. And I knew that there was something wrong with the dolphin encounters and all these things. And then the movie Blackfish just blew my right. mind. And then I decided to research more into it and met the SeaWorld trainers that were in the movie Blackfish. And then I went to San Juan Islands and I saw a killer whale in the wild for the first time. And I got, I mean, I got two orca tattoos. I go to San Juan Islands every single year just to watch killer whales in the wild. They are such incredibly intelligent people. I mean, they might have been people. They might be the most intelligent animal on the planet. Sure. They're one of the few animals that show empathy. Um, I think people would be surprised and we're just killing them. They're dying of starvation. That, that's a big cause for Matt Sorum too, isn't it? Matt Sorum works a lot with Rick Barry who does a lot with dolphins and that, that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's great. I think anybody, you know, we don't want to hear our favorite musicians get all political and talk about political stuff, but we do, I do like it when musicians find a cause to get involved in. Right. And a lot of them do. NASCAR is great for that. I mean, there's NASCAR drivers giving a million dollars and not telling anybody to different charities. So that's, right. that's great. Uh, question number three is, what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? I've always been crazy by Waylon Jennings. <laughs> Either I've always been crazy by Waylon Jennings which every single word rings true. And the other, the other song that really rings true for me is Wheels by John Lennon. And because that song, it says, you know, the words in that, because I ride motorcycles such mm-hmm. obscene amounts, um, the words to that is, you know, something like, you know, people say, they ask me, you know, if I'm happy what I'm doing and right. one of the words in it, you know, surely you're not happy, boy, you're no longer on the ball. I mean, come on, that just fits me. So it definitely, Waylon Jennings, I've always been crazy. John Lennon wheels. And I like Metallica seek and destroy. Okay. Uh, the flip side of that is what's stuck on repeat in hell. Everybody's going to hate me on this. one. <laughs> they're going to hate me on this. The, the, they Everybody, might have a lot of people. No, agree. no they're not. People are going to hate me on this. Take everyone's favorite song. Tom Sawyer Rush. <laughs> I hate that song. I, <clears throat> Tom I agree. Sawyer you're, Rush. You're gonna I hate it. that when it goes. <laughs> and look, Neil Peart's, a, Neil Peart's great. The musicianship in that band is phenomenal. I hate Tom Sawyer Rush and How Soon Is Now by Morrissey. Or is it maybe it's the Smiths? That, mm-hmm. that, right. that guitar sound, like that guitar sound to me is what a headache feels like. <laughs> so I would say that. The trolls are now amassing and moving oh to they've your, been doing it my whole moving career to Twitter feed, my whole career they've been doing that <laughs> okay last but not least and uh, i'm curious to know your answer you're probably going to give me multiple answers but best concert you've ever seen i saw the super suckers play with willie nelson that was great um the big four which had metallica anthrax slayer metallica anthrax slayer and testament Metallic Anthrax Slayer and Testament. I think that's who it was. That was a really good show. It was a big four. Right. Um, oh, it's hard to say. I've seen so many great shows. 
of all different types of bands. I mean, I love going to see the Super Suckers. I think the Super Suckers are just a fun band. Um, what about you've probably been privy to like an intimate moment or, you know, someone backstage rehearsing to get out. You know what happened? It was really cool. This was really cool. And I hate to drop these names right now, but I was sitting, um, I was backstage at this all-star jam in LA where I used to get up and sing sometimes. And I was there with, um, Dax, who, who, uh, Dax Nelson, who plays drums in cheap trick now. It's Rick Nielsen's son. And uh, and Robin Zander was there, and we were sitting there talking because I'm friends with those guys. And a text came on Dax's thing that they just got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he goes, Robin. And I was standing with Robin Zander when they told him that he was inducted into that's the Rock and Roll cool. Hall of Fame. That that's, was badass. That's, that's pretty special. Um, Alice Cooper playing the Cat House was a big highlight in my life. Um, when I was a kid, seeing Queen with Thin Lizzy opening, I went with my dad. That was a pretty badass moment i've been i've been pretty lucky I've what was your first it. concert that you sought out to go to my dad used to manage rock bands so i don't know okay um he managed lee michaels he managed gary puckett and union gap so it might have been those i remember when i wanted flash cadillac and the continental kids i remember going to those shows i really liked um i liked roots rock and roll because of flash cadillac i think the first shows that I think I went to that I wanted to go to, I remember seeing Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And I remember seeing Queen and Thin Lizzy. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. It was great. Thin Lizzy was great. I mean, Thin Lizzy's still great. Even with Ricky Warwick, Thin Lizzy's great. <laughs> well, Ricky, I can't thank you. Was that five? That was five, yeah. Okay. Thank that was, you. That was five, and you answered five questions with about 12, gonna edit with about 12 whole, answers. You're going to edit this whole hour and a half down to 15 interesting minutes? No, it's all uh, – that's too much work. I want to plug my Twitter, that's okay, because it's at Ricky Rackman, which is R-I-K-I-R-A-C-H-T-M-A-N. And please follow me, and it's the same thing on Instagram, R-I-K-I-R-A-C-H-T-M-A-N, and I'm about to embark on another ride this summer. Um, every year I go on, a, on my ride, I go ride an Indian motorcycle, and I let people on social media tell me where to go. And last year, last summer, I rode in every single state, all 48 states, and met so many incredible people, did so many incredible things. And this year, I'm going to break it up throughout the year, but I'm going to ride 18,000 miles on a motorcycle. And I'm not sure where, but um, – and also since it's, it's you know – Late February, and I've only done a thousand miles so far. I better do some riding, but I know I'm going to be the Grand Marshal of D. Snyder's charity motorcycle ride, which is going to be bitching. Where does that happen? In Long Island. So, and the, you know what the crazy thing is? It's like Slim Jim wrote me the Stray Cats are getting back together for a show in Vegas, and I told Slim Jim, and I'm like, dude, just give me a hint where it's going to be. And he wrote back, well, I'll give you a hint. You can ride, do it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> that doesn't I, I mean, it to he didn't even states. know that I lived in North Carolina and the show's in Vegas but it's still somewhere I can ride to you know I don't I, I, I've been coast to coast on a motorcycle nine times I have no problem just riding anywhere so uh, I don't know where I'm going to ride this year everywhere go on my Twitter or Instagram and people suggest places alright well thanks again thank you very much it was hey, a lot of fun my pleasure All right. A big thanks to Ricky Rockman. It's nice to discover about Ricky. There's no difference between on-air Ricky and off-air Ricky. What you see in here is what you get. He's the same dude through and through, and that's uh, that's good to know. 
Um, so we are going to take a short hiatus to be able to go out and get some new interviews. We've got some great guests lined up, but due to scheduling, not everyone was available last month. So uh, we're a little bit behind. We need to do some catching up. We're going to take the next two, three, maybe four weeks, gather up a whole new, kind of like gather up a whole new season and uh, put it out there for you. To uh, stay up to date, we will be on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram the whole time we are uh, kind of gathering our new interviews. So for updates and news, follow us there. Anything else, if you need to reach me, uh, comment. Uh, you can always comment on social media or you can email me directly at dill at rockonomicspodcast.com. All right, so that's it for this show this week, and that's going to be it for the next couple of weeks. So we will be back with some good new guests in about three or four weeks. We look forward to seeing you then. Good night, Cleveland.